Hi, it's Leslie Jane Seymour, and I am here with the Covey cast, and I'm really excited today to bring you someone who I think is just an amazing, inspirational person who has all the research about reinventing yourself or relaunching yourself. She's calling it a launch. Um, her name is Sanyin Siang, and she is a leadership coach, author, founding executive director of the Coach K Leadership and Ethics Center at Duke University's Fuqua School of Business. She's an advisor for Google Ventures and a motivational speaker, speaker whose leadership advice can be seen in Forbes and Fortune, Wall Street Journal. And she is just a lovely person, and she wrote this wonderful book, um, which is just coming out, which is calling the launch book called the launch book, motivational stories to launch your idea, business, or next career. And I met Sanyan at a Duke event where she was moderating a panel. And the most amazing thing about her is she kept no notes. And then at the end of the panel, she had nothing she was writing with. At the end of the panel, she was able to recite back what people said to close the panel. And I, I was so stunned by her memory <laughs> and everything she knows um, that I went up to her and we started talking in any way. She's become a, a, a great person to know. And her book is fabulous. I, I read the whole thing. It's very short. You can read it um, really in a sitting. And what you get is the whole benefit of all her history of being this uh, real business, um, what do you want to call it? In interlocutor, a person who is always looking for answers in the business area. And she has interviewed and or spoken to um, the top business leaders around the world, men and women, um, to find their secrets. And it is all in that book. So I want to welcome Sanyan uh, to our CoveyCast today. So hello, Sanyan. How are you? Great, Leslie. It's so great to be here with you. Good, and you're in wonderful North Carolina. I'm up in here in like dreary New York, so I'm <laughs> envious. You're down in Durham, hanging at Duke. Yeah. So let's let's start by talking a little bit about yourself. And I always like to go back and ask, where did you grow up, and how did that lead to what you do now? So just give us all a very short little sketch of how it led you to your reinvention, essentially. Sure. So I was born in Taiwan. I grew up in New Jersey or Joyzy on the South Jersey shore. And right. I'm now in Durham at Duke University's Fuqua School of Business. And I think back to the first reinvention is really being an immigrant. It's mm. that, I mean, you're, it's a change in culture. It's a shift in identity. And when you are an immigrant, or you're a first generation anything, you're always in between worlds. You're never fully a member of the community that you've left, and you are always trying to be a member of the community that you are entering into. And I think a big part of what I love to do is bridge different divides, you know? And so when you're, when I think back, that formed my perspectives or that was the start of my perspectives on how to get to understand different people and their perspectives and how to connect different people together. And a big part of what I do now, um, I think about my life's mission as not to chase greatness, but to enable greatness in others. So I help Basically, I help champions to keep on winning, whether those are students, chief executives, or readers. 
Right. As we call, what have we called the the book of champions was what you wrote. <laughs> <laughs> Launch book of champions. That's Launch right. Launch <laughs> book of champions. So where, um, so you came when you were about what I'm trying to think seven. back when what I, I read. Seven. You were young, right? Mm-hmm. And how, I did no word of English. And I remember trying to, you know, I was the only one in my classroom in my neighborhood that looked like me. And I wanted so badly to fit in. And when I think about what I do in the leadership context, it's this idea of how do we as leaders help others feel that they matter and that they belong. You know, there's mm. the flip side of that. Interesting. And how old were you when you came? Seven. Seven. Yes. Very formative. So let's talk a little bit about the launch book, which is the name of your new book. And I assume anybody can download that from Amazon? Yes. Yep, it's now on Kindle, and it'll be on Audible's pretty soon, and it's oh, uh, also in book form. Wonderful, so they can find you on Amazon or wherever they buy books, correct? Mm-hmm, yep. Good, so though you're an, a business expert, you talk all about different kinds of launches, and why did you decide to do that? I opened the book thinking it was just gonna be about launches, but your view <laughs> is that any kind of change is a launch, so if yes. you, you know, are trying well, to change yeah, your body type or you're trying to get out of a marriage or you're trying to uh, change, you know, the city you live in. There's always a resistance to making change. And I, I guess that's the question is it, what kind of launch is that and how do you manage it? Mm, so the reason why I wrote the book is from everyone I was dealing with, interacting with, uh, from students to executives to managers, um, even friends, I realized at the heart of a lot of the conversations is how do I address or adjust to a change that's happening in my environment, you know, and in addressing that change, you also have to make a change yourself. And that's what those launches are. And launch is a deviation from the status quo. And oh, then when I reflect fun. back okay. on my own history and my, in your words, reinventions, my own personal launches, I realized there were a series of them. I mean, one, coming to this country, that, wasn't, that was a matter of circumstance. Um, that was a reinvention or a launch, and I had to adjust to that. Another one was when I was, uh, you know, when I was going to undergraduate school uh, in uh, college, I thought my major, I thought I was going to be a doctor because I wanted to help people. And I majored in biomedical engineering, which is very interdisciplinary. And at the end of my junior year, I knew I didn't have the grades to apply to medical school. And that was crushing. But mm. that forced me to step back and think about what do I need to do next? I mean, that was a change. That was a deviation from the status quo. And I thought I was going to go then the next step was going to go maybe to graduate school in the sciences. And I worked in the lab for one year. And in that one year, I had the chance to go to Honduras on a medical missions trip and became fascinated by the uh, entire discipline of biomedical ethics, which was very new at that time. This was in the uh, early 1990s. And I ended up in D.C., working at the intersection of science, ethics, policy, and law. And I was able Ooh, to apply my so knowledge to that. And th then the next reinvention happened was I thought the natural course for that would be to go to law school. A lot of my mentors were lawyers. Um, and 
one day I was on a bus and I had a chance conversation with a stranger and he asked me, what do you want to do? And I said, well, I'm going to go to law school. He said, no, no, what do you want to do in life? And I stopped and thought about it and I said, you know, I want to make things happen. He said, then don't go to law school. <laughs> law <laughs> is about assessing risks and the reasons why you shouldn't do something. Right? And that's why we need, um, that's, that's the nature of law, understanding risks. Oh, and, uh, and he said, if you really want to make things happen, you should go to business school. And it mm. felt right. And at that time, I was getting ready to enroll in Georgetown. And I just stopped and I said, all right. Then we look back at my alma mater, which is Duke, and at that time they had this new MBA program, the cross-continent MBA program at the Fico School of Business, which was uh, 100 students representing about 27 different countries. I love the international flavor of that program, and it was a mix of place and space, meaning you have to one-week residencies uh, between, at that time, Frankfurt and Durham. We alternate. Mm. And the rest of the seven-week uh, seven term was done virtually. So you have to build face-to-face -face trust really fast and be able to sustain that trust uh, virtually across the world and across time and distance. And I thought, this is, you know, I could see this is where, the world was going because of what I was doing at AAAS, and I said, this is it. And so I was at that program, and I had no idea what I wanted to do afterwards. I had an idea of what I did not want to do, which is right. going into government affairs and biotech. And um, that, uh, at the end of that uh, program, the then deputy dean of the school at that time was also my strategy professor. And he asked me what I wanted to do. I said, this is what I don't want to do, but I want to stay in Durham because the love of my life was here. And he said, well, we happen to have this position at this uh, CRM center, customer relationship management, which was a new, relatively new field at that time in marketing. Mm -hmm. Would you like to come and, and run that? And I didn't know anything about marketing besides what I learned in business school. And I... Um, had not really run anything in my life up till then, but I knew it would be exciting because it was trans it, it was learning. It was translating mm -hmm. between yeah. uh, research and practice. And a year later, when they started out the Coach K Leadership and Ethics Center, um, I was recruited for that. So, so it's interesting. Learning. Even in this job, there's all these changes because it's a, it's really a startup. And as you know, startups, they evolve. You've been involved with more magazine, for example. That was a startup. And you've seen how, as it evolved, the nature of your role also has to be a series of reinventions within the job. And so I went from being more on the operations side when I started to now um, to then becoming a leadership expert and learning everything I can about leadership. And it's a continuous learning process. And uh, from there, uh, now also other reinventions is becoming an executive coach and now a book author. Right. Now, the, let's talk about what's the biggest reason why people don't launch. And you talk about that in the book. Yes, I think it's fear. I wrestled with it myself. It's a fear of failure. Mm -hmm. It's a fear of being embarrassed. It's a fear of disappointment. And then that fear is also uh, further augmented by time. 
the lack of time, finding time, because mm-hmm. change takes effort, launches take effort. And the combination of those, I think, often stymie us in making that launch. And by the way, a launch, before you start on the path of exploring whether it's, it's something you want to do or not, in your head, it can be the most successful thing in the world. The moment you start on the path and you start seeing the realities and you're seeing the ups and downs, it's easy to, to just say, you know what, this is not what I imagined. I want to give up. You know? And what do you think the difference is between the people who give up and the people who don't? Is it strictly grit? Is it persistence? Mm-hmm. Is it have you seen oh. anything particular? I think it's two things. One is finding that compelling reason, finding that compelling reason. So there were so many times I wanted to give up in the book, writing this book, as an example. Um, and I was thinking, gosh, if I give up, you know, what, what would that mean? And when I started writing the book, it, when, I, when I started on this path, it was, all right, let's write a book and let's write a book that where the messages will help people. And I needed to find, keep finding compelling reasons to push me forward. And one of those was imagining that my children, it might help my children someday. They might open this book and that it might help them in their future launches. I have three little ones right now. And, and so it was that image in mind. And another, another uh, compelling reason that I discovered in the process of launching this is wow, I didn't realize I would be reflecting that this is a launch journey. Launching this book is a launch journey in and of itself. Mm-hmm. And that this type of reflection forced me to come up with a more systematic framework that would also help me in my future launches. And then towards the end, when I was reflecting back on the drafts and, and editing them and looking through them, I discovered that this book is also a love song to all the people, um, friends who have influenced my thinking, you know, everyone from Francis Hesselbein to Marshall Goldsmith to Coach K, um, who have influenced my thinking. And why should I be selfish to keep all that to myself? This is a way to honor them and to amplify these incredibly valuable messages and lessons that they had shared with me over the years. And, um, and so, and then the other, the second, so one is finding those compelling reasons that you can discover Mm -hmm. those along the way. But the second thing I think, and it relates to grit. Um, I think the way we think about grit is a incomplete way. We think about grit as something individual, something that we have a store of something we, you know, does this person have grit or don't they? Right. I think a more, a wholer way of thinking about grit or resilience is connecting it to others. We are more resilient when we are with a team, when we are part of a community. In fact, when we reflect back, any of our listeners reflect back, when you reflect back, think about all the, every time we've succeeded, every time we've fallen, gone back up, it's never alone. It's, there's always others there who have helped us or even parents who have given us the foundation, you know, um, friends. And that's why I think about this idea of a launch tribe 
is so key to help keep us accountable, to help shape our ideas, to also emotionally help us go through the ups and the downs and give us perspective. So it's compelling reasons. That's one thing uh, to stop us from giving up. And the second thing is finding a launch tribe. Explain the launch tribe a little bit, what that means. (laughs) It's more than your personal board of directors, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, we we talk about that sometimes as as being a a group that'll tell you the truth. You go out and you gather some friends from high school, some friends from college, and their idea is that they pick up, you know, like a lot of, a lot of women have, they know they need to do something else, but they're not sure what it is. Mm-hmm. And so that sort of personal board of directors can help you pick up threads you dropped from when you were younger. You forgot that you used to, you used to watercolor paint when you were, you know, 12. Mm. Is that something you want to go back to or whatever? But it, is, um, is that part of it or is the Launch Tribe much more contemporary? It's actually, that is a part of it. Certainly you need your cheerleaders. You need those people who can help you. It's, when I step back and think about it, it's an outside look into you, right? Helping Mm -hmm. you gain that outside look into you. So those can be your cheerleaders who, when you, let's take that water, even watercolor example, you want to be an artist and you don't, you want to start a business um, selling greeting cards that you make and draw. Mm -hmm. And, And you're trying to find the why and talking to your childhood friend, um, he or she reminded you that, you know what, I remember ever since you were five, you were drawing. This is you. Mm -hmm. This is part of who you are. So we definitely need those cheerleaders, those people who know us, whom we trust, who we can be vulnerable around. So that's cheerleaders. What's, what people don't, and we also need mentors in terms of people who have had the experience. So let's take that greeting card um, art example as uh, continue that onwards. All right, so mentors, people who have actually done this or have started a business and reaching out to them and seeking their advice, right? So we need the mentors. We also need the naysayers. And yes, I was going to ask you about that. <laughs> and that's that. the Let's... thing that we don't often think about because um, that type of constructive feedback is uncomfortable, right? We, we want the people who would say, you know, rah-rah behind us and give us courage. But we also need to listen to the naysayers and see why, what is it that they're saying? Because most likely they see a, um, a, uh, a, a potential challenge or potential issue that we may not see, right? And so sometimes naysayers may not be very good at identifying the root cause of why it may not be a good idea. And they're saying, hey, it's, this is a terrible idea or I don't like right. it. The key is to start saying, okay, so tell me more. Why do you think this is about and dig and interview and dig and dig and, and try to unearth that root cause because that root cause might just reside in your blind spot. And you, then once, you're, once it surfaces, then you can know how to address it. So in low longer, you, you know how to address that risk, that potential risk. And then the last uh, people who should be, the, the final set of people who should be in your launch tribe are really your customers. And by customers, I mean, it's not just for a business, but it's a people who will be impacted, you know, by your 
by your launch. So you think about um, in a home renovation, you're, you're a mom, you're launching a home renovation. In the book, I talk about my friend Andrea Bridges, and she has, uh, she has uh, a young family. Well, her customers are her family, and she has mm-hmm. to really think about in this launch, how do we co-create with them so that this home, as we redesign it, uh, renovate it, is actually uh, in alignment with what their needs are. Or if you are launching into a new, you're thinking about a new career, uh, you have to, for me, uh, being an author, as an example, uh, I've written tons of thousand word pieces, but this is the first time writing a book. And I reached, and I thought it was going to be a book that was filled with research because I thought that's what um, readers will find. Um, uh, fully compelling, right? Right. And no, research said, is never the thing. It's the stories people remember. Well, that's a that was a surprise. So I sat down with um, a few so of my funny. students, and I was, you know, I was <laughs> there was a deadline. I didn't have anything written, and I was really in a panic. And I asked them, "All right, so given today's demands on your time, you've got, you know, Netflix, <laughs> Hulu, podcasts." Right. Um, homework, friends, reading a book takes a lot of energy. What will make you want to pick up a book and say, this is going to be valuable to me? Because readers are my customers for a book. And, and um, their response was stories. Like, and they really? were able to tell you that. That's unusual. Straight off. Most, Straight most off people story. can't tell you that. It's interesting. I did a... Um, an event with Gloria Steinem and Ashley Judd was launching a book. Um, oh, and wow. We were talking about, you know, various things like this. And she said it before it's been out there, of course, as a quote, but um, I had not really thought of it. She said, you know, no one can remember facts and figures. What Mm-mm. they remember is stories because it takes you all the way back to the campfire when we were like cave dwellers. And that's how information important information was passed along. Basically, dinosaur is over there, over (laughs) the hill, is the story. It's not, you know, 15 people were killed by the dinosaur. You should remember that. It's here's what happened when so-and-so did not run fast enough. (laughs) You remember that. I mean, in your your career, you, every article – is a story. You're a curator of yes. stories and that's making right. interesting stories. And actually, I think that's, I'm so glad you brought up the idea of stories because too often when we're trying to launch something, whether it's a career or a business, we tend to default to, well, here are the facts and the figures, or here's the list of what I've done. I would encourage uh, launchers to frame what they do and their why into a story. Into yeah, an that's origin interesting. Story. Well, you know, why the facts and figures is that we've been trained, especially if you're trying to launch a business or whatever, is to boil it all down to facts and figures that investors can understand. But it's I not, mean, that's important, but there's not, that's not the hook. It's the emotional resonance. I mean, we're invest- investors are people, um, customers are people. 
and people respond to stories. I mean, there's actually research that shows that when we hear stories, our brains are wired to respond better to stories than to uh, facts and figures. The facts and figures need to be there to back up, but we need to start with a story. Um, there's a higher level of this um, neurochemical called oxytocin that actually gets released when we hear stories. Oh, and so oh, we actually have a okay. neurobiological response. That's good. To okay. um, hearing stories rather than facts and <laughs> facts and data, which is not interesting. So we're wired. That makes sense. We're wired for it. Um, that makes sense. So let's talk a little bit about change because you say embrace the naysayers, which is not something I've heard before, which is interesting. Mm -hmm. And I and you're saying that because they may be pointing out to you things that you can't see, which is something that I've always. I've always done, you know, people, when I was running companies, they would always say like, why do you ask for so much input? You listen to everybody. It's because mm -hmm. that's what I'm looking for. I'm looking for my blind spots. And you talk a yeah. little bit about blind spots and that blind spots have to be, you need to see your blind spot, even though you're blind to it. Mm -hmm. So, but talk a little bit about how does change threaten others around us? Because that's the, the interesting thing is when you launch into something new, you know, even if it's your family or your partner or your boyfriend or uh, your community, by you changing, mm -hmm. it creates a disruption in your whole ecosystem. And it also shines a little bit of light on the other people who've been complaining perhaps about their situation, but aren't changing. Mm. Well, I think about, I, and I'm so glad you asked this question because we think about going from inward outward, and we don't think enough about going from outward inward. What I mean by that is, so in the leadership world, and a lot of the book is undergirded by leadership perspectives, right? Behavioral science principles. Leadership, when you think about it, um, the biggest gap between the leader follower perception is the gap between what the leader is intending and what the followers are perceiving. Right? So perception. And so how we see ourselves may be very different than how others see ourselves. So as we're launching, um, we're launching, say, from being a, um, oh, a bank executive now into being a baking entrepreneur, as an right. example. Um, we may have already, in our minds, undergone that shift in perception for ourselves. Others still haven't. And so good point. it goes back to, hmm? That's a very good point. Yeah. And so a big part of that is helping to bring them along. And that's why launches can't be done alone. It, I go back to that launch tribe. Part of that engaging others is through the process of engagement, through the process as you did, you know, with, with all the businesses you launch, when you ask, what do you think? People are beginning, that's, that is the start of a shift in perception because suddenly they now have an ownership in oh, your, their invest in your success, right? So it's not only eliminating the blind spots, but it's also the nature of engaging others so that they can be fully invested in your success, that your success is their success because isn't that the best type of success? Mm -hmm. That it's a collective success rather than just our own. And, you, and at the end of the day, then you can celebrate with friends instead of, instead of alone, right? I mean, I, you know, I'm going to turn the, I'm going to turn this on you, um, Leslie. I mean, I, you're an, you're someone who ever since, um, I had started reading Marie Claire, uh, -huh. uh had, 
I didn't realize it was you behind that. When and I love that magazine, and then you know all these different articles and magazines that have shaped me, and all throughout, I didn't realize until I got to know you that it was you who was behind all that. So I have been dying to ask you questions. Oh, Leslie. okay. We'll so, do that on your podcast. <laughs> well, it's, uh, you we can, can ask do that. one. But I just don't want to. I, I want right? to stick like with when, the with you and your book. But go ahead. Yeah, but let's okay. Let's take your example. You said when you were running all these different businesses, you would seek input. Well, all those bu- different businesses was, were part of your launch, but they're also the businesses' launch. Like when yes. the when the magazine, the media industry has been disrupted, certainly in the last in the last decade and a half. And even though it's the same, say publication you had to constantly reinvent within Always. that, you know, that um, publication. And part of that invention, reinvention also means enabling both your employees, your team to see it differently yes, along correct. each step of the way, and also your readers to see it differently each step of, you know, with each change or iteration or reinvention. And so the nature of you on the team level asking, your people, what do they think? So that they, you know, there's there's two parts in that process. You're actually getting great input and great data, but then also think back to how do they do they change that change is hard for them too because they're used to doing things a certain way. Yes, you're asking them to shift. How did just including them facilitate that shift in them? Well, you'll laugh because what happened to me is at one point when I was running Mary Claire. Um, they brought in some outside, uh, what do you want to call it, business analyst of whatever, and they gave everybody those tests where they put you on the on the grid, and mm-hmm. all the other all the other um, editors and chiefs came out as they were basically dictators. <laughs> they oh, came no. out as you know, <laughs> oh. I say you do. I came out as a team runner. And the I'm woman the who was managing this process came to my desk with a very grim face and said, we're concerned. You're not falling in where everybody else is. Um, you know, how are you getting things done, blah, blah, blah. And I looked at her and she, and I said, because I run a team. That, I mean, it's all yeah. about the team. That's all I've ever been interested in is running a team. I want to be yeah. part of it. I don't want to be the dictator. That doesn't help create a great product. And she looked at me and she said, oh, so you're doing this on purpose? Oh, my goodness. And I said, yeah, because 35 heads are better than one. Yeah, like I'm mining everybody's brain and they're part of it. And why would I think that I'm the only person that has the ideas? And mm. why? I mean, just just let's just be practical. Literally, yeah. 35 brains have better ideas than one. Yeah. Like, I just don't understand the person who thinks, and there are many people and you know them, you've run into them. They think they have every idea. And, um, I don't, I, I go out and I, I look for ideas and I bring them to groups and we massage them and make them better. And it's just a different approach, but they thought something was wrong with me, which is so funny. <laughs> well, let's play with that a little bit more, all right? Because there's something interesting in what you're – there's a lot interesting in what you just said there, but I want to, <laughs> I want to um, drop this thread around <laughs> – one, um, one detour. Huh? No, no, but it, it actually relates to the launch book okay, in the good. following way. A lot of people feel like we have to know the answers. 
you know, whether in, in the oh, leadership point. position or starting out, that we have to know the answers. And I yes. think that no, that that myth of needing to know the answers is what leads to also the sense of imposter syndrome, right? Like, oh gosh, you know, I'm not qualified, or I'm not qualified to do this launch, or because I don't have all the answers, I'm not fully prepared. But what you did was you recognize. You don't want to be the person who has all the answers. You want to be the question. You want to yes. be a question in search of answers. And that yes. brings others along. And with 35 heads, um, you get 30, a fuller, richer set of answers. And that's actually a chapter in the book is be a question in search of answers. And I think that's a big part of why you have this confidence to move forward, you know, when so so often people get stuck at the feeling of I'm unqualified. And for you, it's a it's a growth mindset. It's a, you know what, I don't know the answers now. I'm going to have all these questions and I'm going to engage others so that in a matter it's a matter of time before you have a fuller set of answers with a tribe to move along to the next success. And I think that team mentality that you have, that's what makes yeah. you so incredibly successful. I mean, you're legendary in the in the media field. That's <laughs> because well, I'm, like, I'm an outlier. <laughs> Not a no, team. you're really well. You're an outlier, and you're legendary. <laughs> I'm a team runner, and, and also it, it, in um, it's just you know, such a different mindset. I think the mindset. magazine industry was also very different. You know, um, in terms of role models, I'm sure that. That there, so when people look up and they see a command and control type of role models all along everyone else, they feel like they have to be that. Um, yes, correct. And that others... yes, and, and what's really very funny is I had two command and control, very famous editors. And when I got my first job, um, I went to a friend of mine who had been my publisher at Glamour, who I was really loved. And she was mm. much more about turning over power to other people. And I said to her, yeah. what am I going to do? I've had nothing but, you know, these people who are just strangling me and, and they're just, they want to do my job. Like, why do they want to do my job? I know nothing but this kind of thing. And she looked at me and she goes, do the opposite. Mm. It was so stupid. And I was like, oh my God. And I literally, <laughs> my entire life, have done the opposite. And probably, probably the, the only detriment is, but I learned that about myself. As I said, I don't do well um, bringing in people who are very needy of direction. I'm much better yeah. with, and I say to people when I hire them, if you need somebody to tell you every day what to do, I'm not your boss. I'm the kind that you come in, you grow, you grow, you pull on my sleeve if something's going wrong. But otherwise, I assume you're off on your own, you're doing your thing, and you're doing for other people's jobs as well, whatever you're interested in, as long as it doesn't run into them. And, you know, you call on me when you need me. And you, um, it's just a different type and, of And you trust and you empower, management. and that's what enables your team to scale and to really, you know, um, harness the full set of talents, right? Because yeah. if you tell someone what to do, they only do what you tell them what to do. But oh, and it's so demoralizing to work for for somebody who's constantly redoing what you did, or I mean, I yeah. remember getting to a point where I would have somebody rewrite my copy. I was at Vogue as a young writer, mm. and I I actually finally said, maybe you just want to write it yourself. <laughs> like, <laughs> you know, well, like I, I'm really, I, you know, like it doesn't really make any sense for me to do yeah. it because you're just going to rewrite it anyway. So, 
it's it's a it's a very interesting but command and control i think do you feel like command and control is kind of moving away i feel like we are oh, moving to a different authoritarian uh positional power yeah. doesn't really work anymore yeah. it, you know there was a yeah. time when we could when people leaders can rely a lot on it but i think we are people want Oh, let me put it this way. We're in such a complex world and there's so many moving parts moving so mm. fast and they're highly interdependent. Mm. If decisions have to take the time to run up and down a, a chain, <laughs> um, you won't be able to respond fast enough. You can't be, right? you can't be quick. You can't be agile. No, you can't be agile. So, you know, it's about really knowing your people with their capabilities and their weaknesses so that you know um, when, when they, what decisions they're best suited to make and when you have to take control of certain decisions. It's not a total relinquishment of all decision-making, but it's a judgment as to uh, – a judgment with an understanding of the context of, you know, when do you uh, give them control and then when does the control need to be – in your hands because of the things that the position that you're in and the things that you see Mm. it's that dense but it's trust and trust is what leads to agility you have to give your people the freedom to fly you know yeah and i think that's what you're seeing a lot with these very young startups part of the problem Mm -hmm. is a lot of times you're you're hearing that more seasoned managers are brought in to help manage these sort of crazy startups because they really don't know. They're just all running wild and they need some kind of correction and management and, and actual process. <laughs> and that then you go find yourself somebody who has at least some experience with some kind of command and control. <laughs> they don't know it's, what they're um, doing. That I've heard is sort of what's new that's happening. Well, it's structure, right? Structure, yeah, structure. is not, structure is actually a very good thing by the right type of structure, the right type of organizational architecture for a particular phase in the startup's life may make a lot of sense. You know? right. And as long as that understanding is shared by everyone of, oh, here's when we go to this person for a decision, here's when I, you know, I can make the decision when there's that clarity, this is what this person's role is, and this is how we can interact and, and work together so that when I have this piece of information, even though that those two people are in, in two other units outside of mine, I know given what they're doing, I need to relay this to them. Structure facilitates that. You know? yeah. And I think that structure is what's going to enable that startup to scale. Um, and but at the at the heart of it, there still has to be that empowerment, and that empowerment comes from knowledge and understanding of the context, and mm. the architecture and different people's roles. So, so um, let's let's get to the end here by talking about adding fun to your reinvention, which I thought was <laughs> a great little chapter in there. Unexpected. Um, tell unexpected, me why fun's why? so important and how people forget about it. Oh. I think we take ourselves way too seriously sometimes. Um, and um, it's, again, that idea of, I think it's trying to impress or trying to fit a certain image, right? So mm-hmm. let's go back to your magazine world. Um, all those others who fit on the command and control quadrant of the grid, mm-hmm. they probably 
that's what they saw in those who came before them. And they thought, gosh, this is what I need to be if I'm assuming this, uh, this role. Right. And so think about those who followed you and the oh, yeah. courage you gave them to be more, more collaborative and more team oriented. Um, the finding your fun, I mean, it's, I think it's so necessary. <laughs> um, it's, it's finding that joy in what mm-hmm. you do, right? Find, and, and actually facilitating that joy and making that joy. So if you're a startup, um, it's not necessarily the, the always having the ping pong table, which is now in every single Oh, my startup. God, that's become such a um, trope, hasn't it? But, yes. Yeah, so what kind of – can you give a story about fun that, that was added that you've heard that you like? Besides um, the ping pong table yes, or bringing actually, your dogs it's to from work. Greg Nernihan, who isn't in the who, who uh, whose story isn't in the book, but he has one. He started at one of the largest privately owned uh, security companies in the world, and he actually he and his uh, founding partners actually put fun, having fun, into their mission statement as a part of their culture. Oh, I love and it. And so they they would. They would have these days where employees can bring families um, families in, and I think they have to dress up as in different, like uh, have a costume contest. <laughs> oh no, that would keep me away. And, oh my god, you're and forced I think, to have you know, fun. I, I, I see I now think it's going just, the other way. It's like, you know, here's you what have fun. <laughs> yeah, it enables people to see each other as people. Like when okay. we're in a job, we tend to, you know, it's very easy to default to, well, this person is an accountant or this person is, is this, it labels, right? But right. when we start seeing each other as human beings and the full human being it, we, and relate to each other, that makes for that chemistry and that stickiness that creates that team. So it's not only, well, it's a team because this person, we need the marketing person to talk to the accountant about this, to talk to the finance person. Right. Yes, that's, that's, that needs to be done. But wouldn't it be so much better if they actually enjoy each other and can relate to each other? Oh, um, you have that stickiness. That, that team becomes more, that just gels more, that chemistry. And I think fun is a big part of that. And then for yourself, for your own mental, mental uh, state as you're going through the ups and downs of launches, it's taking the time to just have fun, to laugh, to laugh at your own mistakes. Oh, I mean, yeah. we, when we were reflecting back on um, some of your time, and um, in you said at Marie Claire, I mean, we laughed, and now oh. I see you. Um, I, I, I see that that's another nuance that enables me to relate to you more, you know, and right. admire you even more. So that that fun, that laughter, boy, laughter can really bond. But it just don't don't make it forced, you know. It it's got to be natural, right. and it's got to be with the purpose of of facilitating that uh, interpersonal uh, relationships. So I'm going to end, Sanyan, by asking you just, you know, three tips um, for women reinventing themselves. What do you say are the, because the hardest part is just getting started and deciding Mm -hmm. whether you should, you know, everybody says somebody invented this thing. Maybe I should try it. Maybe, ah, uh, whatever. My kids are calling. I got to run. <laughs> what, are, yeah. what are the 
three things that you know, you know you need to do to say yes i should do it um and then they pick up your book to understand it more well one is when you're reinventing or launching launch in pursuit of becoming your best self um, that is understanding what energizes you what you're discovering talents that you may not have um that you may not be aware of um it's uh it, it's a growth right and you're growing to become your best self and so it's with that mindset and the second thing is build that tribe you know go out we, we can't launch alone it's not a solo endeavor um it, it, the business can you can be the founder but it's never a solo endeavor you know engage others engage your family engage your friends ask them you know reach out to them um, give them a chance to invest in your success and don't be afraid to be vulnerable and say, I don't know, or I'm struggling with this. I mean, when I looked back on in the process of writing the book and I was there, there was a deadline and I didn't have a single word written and I reached <laughs> out to my friends and they, they uh, actually gave me perspective that gave me to everybody. a path forward. Right. And then right. Uh, the third thing, uh, the third point is be generous every step of the way. And what I mean by that is don't step back and think, gosh, I will only help others or share what I know with others only if I've made made it. Actually, be generous every step of the way. You know, I started off this podcast with the idea of champions. To me, champions, the best champions are those who champion others. Yes. Um, as well. And I know you, you know, the reason why you are so successful at being a serial launcher, a serial reinventor, Leslie, is that you, you, you include others and you champion others and you're generous every step of the way. That's why you have so many people who are excited and, and wanting to, to rooting for your success. I know it's such a weird thing to, to find yourself out of corporate and, and you, I run into people, I get letters, I would say twice a week, at least even now from people who are tracked me down and they're like, Oh my God, I loved all the, and that's some people have followed me since really my YM days. And oh, they, wow. you know, and they say anything I can do, I'm this now, blah, blah, blah. I run out of this. I run out of that. I want to be part of it. And I'm like, okay, I'm making a long list. It's just me right now, but <laughs> I will be back to you soon. But that's and it's the result. Wonderful. If you think back, you probably weren't aware of it because it's just in your nature. You weren't, you weren't being calculating when no. you were helping someone. You just wanted no. to help. That generosity is now, has become a habit that's core to who you are. And that's what people are responding to. Yeah. And it's hard. I will tell you, um, the hardest thing has been being an entrepreneur, Sanyan, is people say, how can I help you? And uh, that is a really tough thing to say, you can, and here's what I need, especially when I've always been in the position of helping others. That's kind of oh what you gosh. do as an editor. <laughs> we, we, we should have a long conversation about that. Yes. That's a, yeah, that's Absolutely. another podcast. Oh my God. Just being able to say yes and accept help is really hard. But I've so, done it, and it feels really yeah. good. It feels really good. It's scary to to say okay to help because you wonder, you know, you want to make sure the other people are getting enough out of it as well. Right. Um, well, to but all the women, to all the um, woman listeners out there who who 
feel this and face the same issue, it's better, you know, that it's much easier to help others than to receive help. I think about think about the joy when we help others. I know. Are we so I have selfish to go there. That's the only way I can get myself joy of helping over us when they are sincerely offering, wanting to help. I know it's it's still hard, but it's you know let's reframe it as let's not be so selfish, so selfish as to be the sole investors in our success. Let others invest in our success. Love that. That's our last line. Let <laughs> others invest in our success. Sanyan. Yeah. Awesome. So thank you, Sanyan, for being here. And I hope everybody will uh, pick up your book, The the Launch Book. And it's Sanyan Siang. Am I saying that right? Yes. S-I-A-N-G. And you will find her book. It's easy to read. It's great for underlining. You'll, you'll keep it, especially if you're thinking of launching your own business or changing yourself or changing your life or changing your uh, future. It's a it's a wonderful little book and uh, has all of Sanyan's history in there and all the people she's interviewed and all this, the intelligence she's boiled down. So thank you, Sanyan, for being here. And we're going to have to talk about getting help in the next one. <laughs> Thanks so much, Leslie. This has been an honor and a delight. So that was our CubbyCast for today. I hope you enjoyed hearing about Sanyin Siang and all her great tips for your launch or your relaunch, it could be. And I hope that if you enjoy the CubbyCast, you will tell friends about it and pass along the link. It would also be wonderful if you enjoy the CubbyCast to leave us a rating, hopefully a good one. And um, if you can pass this along to other friends so they can join us, the higher our rating, the more people that will get to know us. Of course, I hope you have already joined the Covey Club at coveyclub.com, C-O-V-E-Y. And I hope that you will also join Covey. We will be launching in November. Finally, it's taken a while. And that you will join our Coffee and Conversation uh, broadcast, which will actually be live, so you can actually ask questions of our guests, and that you will join Leslie's List, and there's all kinds of great things you're going to see. There's Leslie's Table. You can click through and find out all about those things that I'm planning for you. I really feel like Cubby Club has come a long, long way, and we are finally there, but I want to hear more from you. Remember, you can always reach me at Leslie, L-E-S-L-E-Y, at CubbyClub.com. And I'm always interested in hearing from you about uh, what you would like to hear or any reinvention stories. Or if you're a reinventor, I'm interested as well in hearing your story. So thank you so much for joining us and tune in next week.